0: One of the things I'm working on is for a free and unified Korea. Of course, everybody focuses on denuclearization, on the nuclear problem. It's My belief, we will never see an end to the nuclear threat, the military threats, the human rights abuses, and the crimes against humanity, as long as the Kim family regime is in power.
1: Welcome to the one podcast. This is Jack. Today we have David Maxwell from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies discussing Korean reunification. Mr. Maxwell is a retired Army Colonel who served as the 1st Soft 1st Brigade Commander and as Professor of National Security Strategy at the National Defense University. Maxwell now focuses on how to help Korea move past the frozen conflict into a unified state. In our conversation he talks about influence, the projected humanitarian relief effort and strategies to help stabilize the nation after the initial reunification. So stay tuned.
0: I mean, that's really the essence of it. And I'm not an advocate for for external regime change. We don't want to do another Iraq and Afghanistan in North Korea, but we need to be ready for what happens next. I'm very worried right now about internal instability inside North Korea I was in Korea in the 90s, and I co-authored the first con plan for North Korean instability and regime collapse, and I compare the problems of the arduous march, the Great Famine of 94 to 96, to the problems that exist now because of COVID and because of Kim Jong-un's deliberate decision-making. Of course, the people inside North Korea suffer because Kim Jong-un deliberately prioritizes his resources to developing nuclear weapons missiles, advanced weapons for war fighting, and support to the elite over the welfare of the people. But what happened in the 90s is that the people survived because of their ability to develop markets. And when the public distribution system failed, they created markets, the black market, gray market, you know, to the point where there are 400 recognized markets inside North Korea. You know, that has really given rise to the the so-called Dongju class, this moneyed class. And and that is a threat to the regime. And when COVID struck, uh, of course, the regime is very afraid of COVID, of an outbreak. Their medical capabilities are so poor. And so they're definitely afraid of an outbreak. But the paradox of COVID is that Kim also saw it as an opportunity. And what they've done over the last couple of years is implement draconian population and resources control measures to control the population to defend against covid but also to mitigate resistance among the people and so the closure of the border with china to both legal trade and smuggling uh crackdown on information on cell phone use on foreign currency use restrictions on the markets what we have now is a situation where there's no longer a safety valve for the people the regime was also bailed out in the 1990s when Kim Dae-jung was elected in 97 and implemented the Sunshine Policy, which provided money to the regime, and it saved the regime. And the people were saved by their own ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and survival skills. Well, now nobody can give money to North Korea on the scale that South Korea did because of sanctions. Those sanctions didn't exist back in the 90s. And so now you're in a situation where things could get really bad. So I think we have to understand you know, the nature of the Kim family regime. Its objectives and its strategy. And we should realize that the regime is conducting political warfare, blackmail diplomacy, and development of advanced warfighting skills with the ultimate objective to dominate the peninsula under the rule of the guerrilla dynasty and Gulag state in order to ensure survival of the regime. And people, I think, get this confused. They think the regime is all about survival. But in its calculus, the regime can only survive ultimately when it unifies the peninsula and it has the resources of the entire peninsula under its control. Now, that's really far-fetched from our perspective because South Korea is so far superior and despite the many apologists and sympathizers in South Korea that exist, you know, I don't think it's possible for the regime to absorb the South. But they are clearly conducting these strategies with the intent to prepare for war, but also to set the conditions to be successful. And the main condition is to get US forces off the peninsula. And so you see their political warfare activities to divide the alliance, undermine the relationship, stop training. If we can't train, we can't leave our troops there. And and so all of these things that we've seen over the last few years are really designed to weaken the alliance, get US forces off the peninsula, and put Kim Jong-un in a position where he can dominate the peninsula. And of course, His development of missiles and these tests, more than 60 tests over the last year, you know, are really twofold. One, you've got to test to advance your capabilities, but two, those tests also have political messaging involved. Mm -hmm. And so they are dual use capability there. So we're seeing all of that. Now for us, you know, we have been very reluctant to take any action against North Korea. There is the tyranny of proximity. Seoul is so close to DMZ under. Artillery and rocket systems that can range Seoul. If war breaks out, you know there's going to be a tremendous amount of death and destruction, blood and treasure expended to defend South Korea. There's no doubt about that. And so we should not react kinetically to a missile test or anything like that. But we have really focused on ensuring readiness. And I commend President Moon and President Biden for this last year and how much military action we have taken to improve the readiness of the combined force in the face of North Korea's actions. Because every time we do that, the message we are sending is Kim Jong Un's strategy will not be successful. So, in 2018, when President Trump unilaterally stopped the the summer exercise, that was a success for Kim Jong Un. He manipulated us into halting exercises. He doesn't want exercises halted because he, as a security guarantee, he wants them halted to be able to weaken the alliance, and so. We've responded well militarily. The other tool that we use are sanctions. And sanctions, though, have not been well enforced. And of course, China and Russia are complicit in North Korean sanctions evasion. But what we haven't done is we haven't taken a holistic approach. And we really need to add three lines of effort to our strategy. First is a human rights upfront approach, second is a comprehensive influence campaign. And third is the deliberate pursuit of a free and unified Korea paragraph 60 of the armistice recognized that you know there was no military solution to the political problem on the korean peninsula and so the korea question is how it described it and the korea question is the unnatural division of the peninsula and so the armistice the military commanders said that political leaders need to come together and solve the political situation the solution and there has to be a unified korea so we really need to pursue that because that's really The only way we're going to see an end to the nuclear threats, the military threats, and the human rights abuses. Now, we need a human rights front approach because human rights is not only a moral imperative, it is a national security issue. Kim Jong-un has to deny the human rights of the Korean people in the North in order to remain in power. And he is threatened by human rights. And we've seen this over and over again. Whenever we talk about nuclear weapons, that legitimizes the regime. The Propaganda and Agitation Department is able to use our expressions of displeasure of the uh, nuclear program in a way that says that we're afraid of North Korea's nuclear weapons. And of course, Kim wants that external threat so he can justify the suffering and sacrifice of the Korean people in the North so he can spend $170 million on missile tests like he did this year rather than use that money to feed the people. When we talk about human rights, it undermines legitimacy. And so one of the recommendations I make is every time we have to talk about North Korea's nuclear program, we need to emphasize that by developing nuclear weapons, he is causing the suffering of the Korean people in the North. And he is denying the human rights of the Korean people in the North in the way that he does through their Juche ideology, the Songbun system. And so... That needs to be part of an information influence campaign. But the information influence campaign really needs to be focused on causing three effects. Number one is giving Kim the opportunity to change his behavior by recognizing that his strategy is failing and will fail. And that means never giving in to his demands. The second is that it causes the elite and the military leaders to recognize that the strategy is failing and that they force Kim to change. And then, of course, the third and the outlier is that, of course, the Korean people in the North ultimately force change, which is a real challenge. But if you are using information in that way, that third line of effort puts tremendous amount of pressure on Kim Jong-un, and that contributes to his failing strategy. And so it is really the best opportunity really to probably force the elite and the military to drive change in North Korea. because. People armed with information are more of a threat to Kim Jong Un than the U.S. military is.
1: That's... One thing that you have brought up is a show called Crash Landing on You, which I I would call an attractant style information campaign because it what makes you want to go and do something versus a detractant where you just insult them unless they do the right thing.
0: That's really important. I talked to seven soldiers from North Korea before COVID, and uh, including. The sergeant who uh, escaped across the uh, JSA in Panmunjom was wounded in November 2017. And I asked said, how are soldiers in the North, in the NKPA, viewing crash landing on you? Because they watch it. They see it. It's imported. It's you know smuggled in. And, and their answer was that it makes the soldiers want to come to the South even more. What, what was really remarkable is that, first of all, conservatives in the South did not like the movie because it portrayed... The Korean people in the North as human beings, the people and the military, and not as the monsters uh, that the propaganda tends to do. And this is important because from the North Korean perspective, they really respected that because everything that they receive from the regime about the South is its just an insult to the South. The South, are, people are stupid. They're a puppet of the United States. They're not as good as the, the Korean people in the North, and everything is just disrespectful and insulting. They've never, ever seen the regime portray the South in anything other than a negative light. But for the South to portray the Korean people in the North in a positive or a human way, that has tremendous influence. And so that movie, Escape from Mogadishu, there's other movies that are being developed in drama series that are really show North and South cooperating together and the potentials. I would argue that the South Korean entertainment industry really needs, to start developing dramas that show unification, that show North and South cooperation, that show, that plant seeds for what the future could be like. The Koreans in the North will someday own their own land. You know, they will have real elections and they need to start explaining what the political system will be like to plant seeds in their mind. What we ultimately wanna do is when faced with a choice, you know, to act, we wanna give the people options. One example is that we want to focus on the second-tier military leaders, and we want South Korea to have a policy that says, if you don't attack the South, you'll have a place in a unified Korea. And if you control your weapons of mass destruction, you'll not only have a place, you'll be rewarded for it. And so you create these kind of dramas that show that, that shows a crisis in the North, that shows an attack order from Kim Jong-un, but then the frontline corps don't attack, and North and South come together. If I were king for a day, I would be having all the South Korean units on the DMZ patrolling, and I would have them leave bags of Samsung cell phones on the MDL, and I would be placing them out there pre-programmed with numbers to every Corps headquarters. You know, I'd have a gift for the the South Korean First Corps commander, you know, and, and I would love to have communication between the North and South Corps commanders. Of course, It'd still be hard to do because of the security system, the three chains of control, but we should try that. And I would have Korean Telecom build cell phone towers right along the south barrier fence to extend cell phone coverage as far into the north as possible. There's a report out today from 38 North that says you know there are up to 7 million smartphones inside North Korea. Of course, it's in their internal 3G network, but we can penetrate that. And that also shows that information can be disseminated within the North. And so we need to exploit all of that. These movies and dramas series like Crash Landing on You can be really, really important and have a great effect. We don't need to be denigrating Kim Jong-un. There was an article in The Guardian today that, you know, we look at North Korea as a curiosity, and really we need to understand it. As I said, understand the nature, objectives, and strategy of the regime. But we don't need to paint Kim Jong-un as a bad person Korean people in the North know he's bad, but, you know, he's also their bad guy. As Americans, it doesn't matter who our president is. When a foreigner insults our president, he insults us. So we need to think about that. We don't need to denigrate Kim Jong-un, but we need to show the possibilities of the future. Plant those seeds and help the Korean people in the North make the right decision when a time of crisis comes. We should be investing in that. You know, the Chinese have a saying, when is the best time to plant a tree? You know, 20 years ago. You know, so 20 years ago, you'll have a tree today. And that's the same with information. But the next best time is today. You know, plan right. it as soon as you can. We've wasted the last two decades as i you know, we've been calling for this. And think of how far along we could be if we'd been executing a comprehensive influence campaign for decades. But it's not too late. We got to start today to hopefully achieve effects in the future.
1: You know, interestingly, I, um, I was in Korea back in 2016, 2017, and and I had to do a media interview training with the rock, and and we went through the usual warm up stuff and then talked about doing humanitarian assistance to the north, you know, because of a, a crisis was had happened. One of the things I brought up just to see if I could spin them, I said, "Well, it's really great that you allowed all of those Korean dramas." to drift up northward because it helped educate the North Koreans on how to call for help if you need it. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What an interesting idea, but he wouldn't comment. So he did a good job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, the interesting thing that's going on in Korea to me is the amount of Chinese diaspora that has, moved into South Korea, and it's kind of muddied the strategic positioning because now North Korea is just as at risk of harming Chinese citizens as it is Korean citizens if they did do something aggressive. So it's very possible that North Korea does a retaliatory strike because of some incident, and China actually invades North Korea.
0: Yeah, I don't believe that China wants the problem of North Korea. You know, I think China wants to maintain the status quo for as long as possible. Yeah, there are about a million Chinese in South Korea, and that will complicate things if there's ever a NEO, because China has demonstrated its ability to conduct NEO in Libya. And so it may want to evacuate its citizens, which will complicate our NEO plans, because our NEO plans are based on cooperation from the Korean government and the Korean transportation industry we have contracts set in place china will come in and double triple the asking prices and and take away our resources and of course pyeongtaek is the closest port to china so mm-hmm. you'll probably have chinese citizens consolidating in pyeongtaek which you know will not be good for uh, camp humphreys and osan and everything there so so you're going to have those problems there but china i don't think wants to invade north korea of course north korea and china don't really like each other Despite they're the only alliance, my dealings with Chinese at the track two level is that, you know, they want to maintain the status quo for as long as possible, because that's what really benefits them. They don't want war. They don't want regime collapse. But in the end, they recognize that Korea will be unified. You know, so their next objective is if there is a unified Korea, they want U.S. forces off the peninsula. And so I think that that's what they'll work toward. The other thing is that China, I think, is planning for unification as we see them take out leases for natural resources, mineral rights for 50-year leases, 100-year leases throughout the mountains in North Korea, you know, manganese and other other metals. And there are supposedly deposits of rare earth metals in North Korea. There's a lot of potential there. And so what I think China wants to do is ensure that when there is unified Korea, that they have all these leases in place. And they'll tell the United Republic of Korea that, look, your constitution, South Korea, said you're one Korea. All Korean people are Korean citizens. We made agreements with Korean people. We want you to honor those agreements. And so they will have economic influence in a unified Korea. But I don't think they want to absorb North Korea into another province. That just would be too much of a burden for them when they can shift that burden to South Korea and accomplish the same things if they can get a unified Korea to kick U.S. forces off the peninsula. And maintain strong economic influence. That to me is China's strategy. So I think that's what we have to plan for.
1: Okay. Well, quick question How do you see our operational teams like civil affairs, state aid, you know, all of our public diplomacy and civil engagement teams? How do you see them building up the relationship between Korea and the United States as this unification continues to linger and potentially change?
0: Well, I think the outcome in Korea, or the next step in Korea, will be the largest by, with, and through operation we've ever conducted. We have to look at the Korea that we have got to make our allies successful. And the first step on that, of course, is OPCON transition. We actually need the ROC-US Combined Forces Command to be commanded by a Korean general, because we do not want to have the U.S. leading operations inside North Korea. And we have the opportunity to have a Korean command, U.S. support, It will still be a combined command answering to both countries, but with a Korean general in charge. And that's important because from the U.S. perspective, we cannot afford another Iraq or Afghanistan, and we cannot afford the position where we are an occupier in North Korea. And so that's why the forces need to be led by a Korean general. That said, we need to bring all our expertise and work through by and with to make the Korean military successful. The other reason is because once we go into North Korea, the outcome has to be a political process of unification. And the military is going to have to support that political process. And it's not appropriate for the U.S. to support a Korean political process. So it needs to be led by the Korean military. And so the Korean situation has to be solved by the Korean people. We can support operations. We can be part of CFC, but we need to have the Koreans in charge of it. Now, from a civil affairs perspective, uh, in 2006, Robert Kaplan quoted me as saying that humanitarian assistance in North Korea will be the mother of all humanitarian assistance operations. And it's true, but we've got to have real plans to properly use resources to focus on unification. Yes, you got to restore essential services. you got to provide the ability to survive. But it's not just to feed the people. You know, we need to really work to help the Koreans understand that one of the first things we want people to do in North Korea is to own their own land. Why do we want to do that? Because that will help keep them in place. If you own your land, you're not going to leave it. And so there's got to be that immediate transition. I've often said to my Korean counterparts, I joke, I said, if I were you, I'd be using my satellite imagery to map out all of Korea and developing titles to land. I would have those land plots identified, and I'd have them with a blank name there. When the military forces go in there, they will meet Mr. Kim or Mr. Park or Mr. Lee, and they will say, you own this land. Here's the title proving to the United Republic of Korea that you own this land. Fill in the blank, give them a copy, keep a
1: copy on file, and they own their land. You know, that Um, sparked a thought. What if the South Koreans actually did go out with their satellites and map all the plots and create titles for those plots and then started to work with their contacts in the north to find those people and let them know that when there is reunification that those people own the land i think that would actually help to motivate people to build reform
0: and they're going to protect that land cuz what we want to do is prevent mass migration and and as you know refugees mostly will move based on Violence. So we want stability. But if people can own their land and they can subsist on it, they're likely to stay there. And so we will want to be able to help the Korean military and Korean civilian infrastructure to be able to put in place mechanisms for food distribution to keep the power on, improve the power situation, and immediately improve quality of life. People are really afraid of unification in the South because they look at the numbers, the disparity between GDP and basic income of North and South. And so you're not going to raise the North to the same standard living as the South immediately. You know, you're know you not just going to give them that money, but you've got to gradually do it. It's like when you graduate from ranger school and you go to the buffet there, and after 56 days of starving, you gorge yourself at the buffet. What happens? You get sick. Korean people in the North, if you overwhelm them with everything from the South, it's going to cause problems. So you've got to use their existing culture, their existing structures, and change things over time and again while making sure that essential services and basic uh, standard of living is provided and so those are the things we have to work on and of course south korea doesn't have a large civil affairs capability and and often like others you know it's overlooked neglected and so our civil affairs capability our professionals uh, can have a great impact and influence on their forces and that's something that we should be we should be doing now to help them develop their plans and resource them and train
1: fantastic all right i think i've used up enough of your time sir all right
0: sounds good (laughs) you've got my bios at ftd.org for defense of democracies
1: of course i'll have it in the show notes
0: all right well thanks this was enjoyable i was like uh, you know i like talking to somebody who's interested in these areas it was my pleasure (laughs) to get a to get a kindred spirit on the on these issues
1: Thank you again, Mr. David Maxwell, for coming on 1CA Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jack Gaines, and sponsored by the Civil Affairs Association. And, of course, I'm dedicating Pat Benatar's We Belong to the Koreas Who Belong Together. I hope you enjoyed listening. And personally, it reminded me that creating a vision and planning for a better future can inspire people to achieve a greater reality. Of course, that's what this podcast is about bringing in people who work on ground to achieve the last three feet of foreign policy and inspiring the next generation to get involved. This is one C.A. See you next week.